Hey everyone, it's Rabbi Sharon Brous here. This sermon was given on Shabbat just about two days after the horrible tragedy in Miami Beach, the collapse of the condo. And um, many, many people are still buried beneath the rubble and the search and rescue mission continues. I looked at one particular detail of the story from Parshat Balak in order to remind us that even after all we've been through in the last year and a half, so much suffering and grief, we really have to fight against compassion fatigue. Our humanity rests in our ability to feel for one another in times of struggle. And our rabbis actually promise that those who are able to identify with the suffering of community will merit one day seeing its consolation. So I offer these words with a heart full of sadness for all those who've been affected by this terrible tragedy for us all. I want to speak this morning about one particular bizarre detail in the very bizarre story that is this week's Torah portion, which we're going to hear more about later on today, which Levi is going to share some insights to uh, later this morning. But just to give us a little bit of context uh, for the story, so Balak, who is the king of Moab, is fearing the Israelite people who are making their way uh, at, the, at the end of their journey from Egypt, where they were enslaved for hundreds of years, to the Promised Land. And Moab sees that they have prevailed over a number of the, um, of the communities of the nations that they had to cross through in order to get to the Promised Land and is very scared. And in his fear, he partners with the neighboring Midian and, uh, and together they hatch, this, they hatch this plan. I think they realize that they can't beat Israel militarily and so they want to beat Israel spiritually. And what they do is they invite Bil'am who is a prophet from among the nations to give a, to curse the people Israel, and and the idea is that somehow we might weaken them, if um, if we're able to curse them, and then we and the other nations that that still exist, we might be able to find strength so that we can conquer Israel. And Bilam is a person who is in connection, communication with God, and he does have some humble awareness that he can't act without God's permission and actually asks God, can I do it? And God says, no way. And, and, then, uh, and then asks again. And this time God says, fine, if you really want to go, you can go, but I'm not going to let you curse them. And Bilam picks up and goes. And, and God's really angry about it. God's wrath flares because Bilam agreed to go. And God does something very interesting, sends an angel to block the road, to impede Bil'am on his journey when he's going out to the peak where he can overlook, uh, see the whole Israelite people and camp below and curse them. God sends this angel who's gonna block the road and the angel stands there and is menacing the prophet with a sword drawn. But Bil'am the prophet, he sees nothing. It's right in front of him but he sees nothing. His, his ass, his aton, his she-donkey, on the other hand, sees the angel and gets the message right away and desperately tries to turn around and to flee from in front of this, uh, of this sordid angel. 
Bil'am is completely unaware of what's happening. Are, are the details start sounding familiar to some of you? Do you remember this? Okay. So he starts hitting the donkey and forcing it to, to move forward, but the donkey balks because the donkey sees what the prophet, the man of God, cannot see. And finally, the donkey just sits down. He crouches down underneath Bilam. He's not going anywhere. And, and, and Bilam is losing his mind, and his anger flares against this animal. And then God opens the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey speaks. And the donkey says, why are you hurting me? You, you mock me, says Bilam. You mock me. If only I had a sword, I would kill you myself right now. And then the Torah says in chapter 22, God then uncovered Bilam's eyes. And Bilam looks up and actually sees what the donkey had seen all along which is God standing there in the form of an angel with a sword in hand. And when Bilam sees this, he gets it. So there are so many ironies and absurdities to this story. The story goes on. We'll hear more about that later. The, the Midrash points out, isn't it ironic that, that Bilam wants to best Israel with the power of his words, but he can't even best his donkey without a stick and a sword, right? I mean, we here we have Bil'am the prophet who proudly declares to the king that God places words in his mouth, and yet in the story, God places words in the mouth of a donkey. There are so many absurdities here, but perhaps the greatest absurdity, and the one I want to invite us to think about this morning, is that Bil'am claims to have the power of prophetic insight, and indeed, it seems that he does. And yet he can't even see the angel that's right before him, which is, which is clearly visible to the donkey. How is it possible that this animal, who's known to be one of the dumbest of animals, sees what a prophet of God can't even see? And, and the rabbis, one, one of the explanations for this that I'm so struck by says the following, that God gave animals the capacity to see more than some people can because human intelligence would lead us to get all torn up if we could all see the danger that exists at all times around us. Now, I know that as soon as I said that, some of you want to come tell me the stories of your very brilliant dogs and cats. I don't want to hear the cat stories. I will take the dog stories over Kiddush. But God says, according to the rabbis, that some animals are smarter than us because it's human nature to quiet our ability to see what might be right in front of us. Because if we could see it, we would be all torn up all the time with the recognition of how profoundly vulnerable we are at every moment. In other words, it's not just Bil'am. It's us too. Human nature is for us to close our hearts to the pain and to the chaos and to the danger and to the brokenness all around us. It's human nature to turn away. And as a result, we don't know how to be proper witnesses to other people's pain. Because other people's vulnerability reminds us of our own vulnerability. And I have to tell you, I felt it last month when, when there was all this reporting about the spike in COVID cases in India. I, I don't know if you had this experience too, but I found myself just wanting to turn the page. I didn't want to read it. 
I didn't want to see the images inside those hospitals in India. And I was talking to my friend who's a pastor about it. And he said that he actually felt the same way until he had a counseling meeting with one of his congregants who's from India, who was telling him about his parents and grandparents who were there and how terrified he is for them that they take their lives into their hands when they go out to get a bottle of milk. And it changed him somehow, knowing someone who was a direct point of connection. And, and it moved this, this pain over there from the abstract to the real. And it forced my pastor friend, and honestly, it forced me to feel again. And remarkably, both he and I somehow found room in our hearts, even though our instinct had been to close off. I have to tell you, I felt that instinct again on Thursday when I got up in the morning and saw the images from Miami, the images of the Champlain Towers, the condo in Surfside, just the enormity of the suffering and the heartache and the devastation. And I know how tired we are. And I know that this year and a half has been grief on top of grief. And I know that our hearts are already broken. And I know that there's a natural human defense mechanism, which when joined with a general exhaustion and a sense of our own limitations, a sense of helplessness and compassion fatigue makes us just want to disengage. And yet, it feels really clear to me that the message is that we can't disengage. Because we can pretend that the angel is not in the road with a flaming sword trying to get our attention, but that doesn't mean that the angel's not there. And that doesn't make the message go away. Before Shabbat, there were 159 people still missing. 159 people. And we heard stories of rooms full of desperate people awaiting word from their loved ones. And I saw pictures which reminded me of what it was like to live in New York City after 9-11. Pictures that were pasted on every wall and on every post throughout New York City. Some of you were there and you remember it too. But there were images of people saying, please call me if you've seen or have any information about my loved ones. And we saw pictures of rescue workers who were endangering their own lives to try to go in with stethoscopes to see if they could hear scratching or breathing underneath the debris. I want to ask us on this Shabbat not to turn the page on this tragedy and on whatever else comes our way in the days ahead, even though we really have every right to because we're exhausted from all the loss and all the pain. But I want to invite us instead to move closer to the human suffering rather than further away from it, to learn how to lift our hearts in prayer, just in case prayer might actually be efficacious in the face of profound human suffering. And even if it's not, because prayer is a gesture of human solidarity and love, a gesture of connection. When one limb of the body is struck, we learn, the entire body cries out in pain. And as much as it hurts us to be that awake in the world, as much as it's hard to get all torn up in the language of the rabbis again and again, the alternative to that is to become numb and to blind ourselves to one another's pain. And if this year has taught us nothing more, let it be a reminder that we are all bound up in the bond of life with one another, that our pain 
and our fear and our heartache are all wrapped up in one sacred human tapestry. There's a text I turn to all the time in Ta'anit, Masachet Ta'anit from the Talmud. It says that the idea is taught in a Brita that when a community is suffering, a person's not allowed to say, I'm going to go home and eat and drink and be at peace. Not when the community's in pain. Instead, it says, Ella yitza'era dami matzibur. Person should be distressed along with the community. And they use the example of Moses who climbs up on that hill when the people are attacked by Amalek and he gets really tired when his arms are up in the air. So they do two things, Aaron and Hur hold up his arms, but first they bring him a rock to sit down on and the rabbis say, it's Moses, you couldn't bring him a pillow? Like he's gonna sit on a rock? That's not kind. And they say that Moses himself said, I can't be too comfortable when so many of my children are suffering in this way. And the rabbis say that anyone who's willing to experience the pain of a community will merit witnessing its consolation as well. I know how hard this is. I know that every sermon every rabbi gives is the sermon that rabbi needs, and I'm sure there's a reason that I'm giving this sermon now because I need it as much as any of you do. But I was reminded before Shabbat of a piece that I read and many of you saw as well that came out soon after the 2016 elections that said that we are all going to need to learn that lesson of middle school choir. That when you need to sound a long note, far longer than any one person can hold, one starts and then another joins and then another joins and then the first one's able to breathe so that she has the strength to rejoin herself. And what it sounds like to the world is a steady flow of breath and song. We need to take our breath too but then we have to be willing to re-enter the landscape of human suffering, even when it's so painful that we just want to break. Because when we enter the landscape of human suffering, we are invited into the landscape of human triumph. And we are reminded that we're all in this together. In that same text from the Gemara that I shared, the rabbis offer this image. They say, as you may know, that every one of us has two angels that are with us at all times. When the Jewish people is in distress, but one of us chooses to separate ourselves from the pain, to change the channel, to turn away from it, the two angels that are on either side of us reach down and put their hands on that person's head. And they say, this person so-and-so, who has separated himself from the community, let him not see the consolation of the community. But I'd like to suggest a way to amend this narrative. That the two angels stand on either side of the one who looks away and put their hands on that person's head and say, this person, so-and-so, who has lost her way, help her find her way back to community. Help her remember how to open her heart because her pain is not the only pain. We are all one in trial and in triumph. Shir hamalot mimamikim karati Adonai. Out of the depths, I call to you, God. Please, God, I ask that you bring comfort to those who have suffered the unthinkable and to those who await what might at this point only be devastating news. 
Please give refuge and strength to the victims' families and their loved ones and to the survivors of this calamity and the one before and the one that will come after. Please help us all find strength in this time of so much trouble and help us remember that just as we are present to the suffering and to the heartache, so may we too merit seeing the redemption. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Amen.